You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. All right, on the podcast today, I have Mike Funderburk, and I really wanted to get Mike on the podcast today. In fact, I mentioned it briefly in one of my prior episodes. There's a new content platform out there specifically for hunting, more focused on the woodsmanship side of things, called Hunt Better. And, you know, this is largely Mike's brainchild, and he got a, a couple of guys that uh, were like-minded in pretty early, and ultimately, I think what this is growing into is pretty cool. It's a uh, you know, subscription service i'll let mike kind of get into more of the details but a lot of really interesting detail that you don't necessarily get just from maybe listening to podcasts or just watching youtube or you know a lot of these other places that we get some of our content so mike thanks for jumping on why don't you go ahead and give the listeners a a brief background yeah gary thanks for having me man this is exciting i think what hunt better is uh, what it is now and and our plans for the future is really exciting as well. So a little bit of background, just for me, man, I, I've always had this itch for for learning. Um, I've always been into it. I've always wanted to know as much as I can about whatever I'm into, you know, whatever hobby that is. I, I just wanted to learn. I remember buying like skateboarding trick tips videos when I was younger, just to just to watch the process of learning something. And when you talk about Hunt Better, it's hard to that because that's just kind of an extension of who I am um, and when you talk about the team that we're building it's it's an extension of those guys too you included Andy May Jared Schaefer I mean you know all the other guys that are helping out we're all just learners <laughs> we love to learn and we learn or we love to get better um, I don't think any of us like to be stagnant um, you know Andy May's a great example is he's killing some of the biggest bucks in the country and he'll be the first to tell you that he's still got s- stuff to work on and to learn and so um, but I remember I, you know, I grew up hunting public land with my dad, uh, cause that was kind of the only option, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't have a, we didn't have a ton of money to be, you know, in clubs growing up and spending money on a lot of technology and technology wasn't, hadn't come a long way at that point. But, um, I just remember him always saying, you know, if you take every product away, we didn't have, we didn't have many products. It was just us and our weapons and our, you know, how far our legs would take us, um, but he would always say, and this has always stuck with me all through my life, um, he would say, if you took everything away, I wanted to know that I could get it done, uh, you know, basically with, with, without any fancy tools or anything. And uh, I just always remember that, you know, and, and um, so I'm thankful for that, that background, kind of that foundation of woodsmanship. I think I took my first break on trail cameras like five years ago, and I've, I've used them since then, but um, I just don't rely on them as much as any, anymore. And, um, when I got to that season of life and like in my hunting career, where I want to start killing bigger bucks, you know, I want to start tagging out more during Turkey season. Um, I quickly realized when I started reaching out to these people and saying, Hey, could you help me? Could you you know, be a mentor? Could you give me some advice? It just all naturally came back to this foundation of woodsmanship and keeping that at the, at the center of everything. And that's when my success just like took off, man. Um, but before that, it had plummeted. And so uh, when I decided to start doing that is when a lot of things changed. So all that said, uh, pro- this was probably, this was 2020. Um, 
no, actually, this is 2021. I had this idea, and it just struck me out of nowhere. You know, I love uh, things like Masterclass, things like um, there was something in the music industry called Mix with the Masters, or anything like that with the within the hunting community. And there, and there really, there's really not, um, not to the level that I was seeing in my mind. And um, so I started reaching out to some guys that um, really are mentors to me, and uh, I mean, you included, man. And you guys told me I wasn't crazy, <laughs> and and then we just started trying to build this thing. I mean, that's the kind of the short story and the short background behind it. But um, yeah, our goal with Hunt Better is to is several things. Is we want to you know as hunters, it's our responsibility. We feel that responsibility to give back um, to conservation to these organizations who are really doing great work. And so um, from the get go, we said, hey, some of our our profits are going to go straight to those organizations. Um, we're going to be that on-ramp for people to, to give back and to get involved. Um, so it's cool because, because anybody that subscribes to Hunt Better is joining the fight because we're, we're putting your money to work. Um, so that's really cool. That's kind of a, a standard thing, you know, kind of standard operating procedure. Um, the other part is we wanted to kind of close that gap of being able to, just like how I grew by reaching out to people, we want to kind of close that gap for the majority of the hunting community. Like, hey, here's a here's a chance to interact with John Eberhardt. Here's you know all these guys that 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 may be involved down the road too. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where it's at. That's kind of a short breakdown, I guess. Maybe it was long. No, that, that's good. And I mean, that's something I've noticed as well is that you have when you talk to guys who consistently get it done, and maybe they've been getting it done for a long time, very consistent year after year they might use tools and equipment and everything else, but it's an enhancement of right. their baseline skill set on their foundation. And if you took that stuff away, they would still have success, maybe not as efficient of success, but they would still know what they're doing. Um, and I, I do definitely feel like a lot of times with the access to information and technology that we have right now, you know, sometimes there is a little bit of that uh, ability for people to go out and maybe have quick success, but then, again, you take that away and it just doesn't mesh, you know, quite the same. Um, so we've talked about this before, having that firsthand experience from the woodsmanship side of things is sometimes hard to translate into words, sometimes hard to teach somebody unless you're either number one, learning it yourself by experience or kind of being right there with somebody and getting that information firsthand from them, seeing what they look at, seeing what they, uh, pay attention to what they don't pay attention to picking up on some of those little things some of those details that can make a really big difference and that's you know ultimately what we're trying to to get across with the the different hunt breakdowns and conversations and everything else that we have going on with the platform yeah and i think you would agree i, I completely agree with all that and i bet you would agree too that you know we're in this stage of of hunting where it's probably the the coolest stage to be in because of all the great things that are coming out, but it's so important. And I feel like it needs to be talked about more is that tools are tools and tools can become crutches when we forget that. I, I when I, the more and more I talk about it and think about it, I get, you know, there, there's this passion and desire and, and lots of other guys I've talked to that have been in the game for a while that, man, if we don't, if we don't start talking about these things, we're going to lose them. And we're going to lose this idea of, you know, this ability to use a compass in the woods. We're going to lose this idea of being able to navigate the terrain based on the edges, um, how to read sign, how to read tracks, um, because we might get too reliant on these things that are tools that are supposed to, I like what you said, just supposed to enhance things. And um, yeah, and that's, you know, a lot of people are asking us, uh, you know, how, kind of where we stand on that stuff. We're like, man, we, we are we're probably the most supportive of those things of, of technology of gear we love gear i know you and me especially we, we just love talking we can talk about gear for hours um but i think we all agree too that we can't allow that to replace woodsmanship we can't allow that to replace experience and you know miles on the boots so yeah i completely agree with that yeah definitely so we launched hunt better back in february so it's been active for a little bit over a month. And I guess for a lot of people who might be listening and don't know, I guess, what's on there, right? We talked a little bit about woodsmanship, but you know, what actually is Hunt Better? 
what can they learn from Hunt Better? How does that, you know, do they log in? What what do they have available to them? You know, what kind of learning opportunities do they have? What's the experience uh, that they're going to be looking for? Yeah, so if you go to huntbetter.us, um, you'll see everything that we offer currently. Um, we are always working on new stuff, and we got some new stuff in the hopper that we can't talk too much about, but I'm super excited about it. It's going to add a ton of value. It's going to help a lot of guys. Um, we just got some final touches to add. We're getting some really cool people involved. Um, and that's probably a good place to start. The, the guys that are involved with this, um, I feel completely out of my league um, <laughs> because I am. Uh, but the guys involved, uh, you included, Andy, um, Jared, John Eberhardt's on there. Uh, we got Rendell Eric coming up. We got Aaron Warbritton coming up. Jared Scheffler, uh, Steve Shirk, Shane Simpson was on uh, this past week. And basically, we have some original series. We have some interactive live streams. So the original series, we have something called Breaking Down the Hunt. And that is basically, so there was, there was this, this idea was born out of, uh, out of this right here. And I don't, I don't even know if he knows this, but Andy May started a thread way back in the uh, Hunting Beast days. Uh, I don't know, maybe like 2014 or something. And he started this thread. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but it was basically guys getting on there just explaining their hunt, like they're the breaking down their hunt. Um, and I think out of every thread on the hunting beast, that was the most impactful for me. You know, like I said earlier, I, I love learning. I love all of those details and looking for the little nuances. And I'm sure that was in my mind, like probably subconsciously as I was dreaming up breaking down the hunt. And I shared it with you guys and you've done an incredible job of breaking down the hunt. And basically it just takes the story, the background, um, the maps and all that stuff that the, the access, the exit routes, all of this stuff, um, it breaks it down into detail. And so people can learn, people can see, Hey, they did this because the deer did this or the turkeys did this or whatever. And it just help gives people a visual. I'm a very visual person. So things like that really help rather than just watching it unfold on TV. It's more of like the legacy. You know, we have one with Andy May and John Eberhart, you know, two of the greatest hunters to ever live, honestly. And they're sitting down and they're just talking to each other. It's not like, it's really not like any other video you've seen because they're, you know, they're not trying to impress each other. They're not trying to show off anything. They're just two people that are passionate about hunting and they're conversing. And, you know, our plans, our, our friend Jared was out there filming it. And the plan was for it to go like an hour and a half. And I think it ended up going like three hours. <laughs> like we, they even ran out of light, but Jared was like, I couldn't stop because it was just, it was an amazing moment in hunting. Um, so pretty cool stuff. Uh, we, we're working on something else um, called Field Guide. Uh, I can't say too much about it, but it's basically going to be like a mentor in your pocket. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that's how we market it, Garrett. I don't know. It, it's just a totally different depth of education. Um, it's something that you're like, man, I never would have got this if I wasn't able to connect with this person this way. Um, so it's it, it, like we said earlier, it's just kind of closing that gap, um, between the experts and the, and the guys who are really hungry to grow. Yeah. And, and that doesn't even include the, the live interactive webinars that you kind of briefly touched on a little bit before, but that's another thing that we've already kicked off and we've had three, three guests on so far, three so far. That's right. And, and, uh, mixture of, of turkey hunting content and deer hunting content obviously right now is you know with march is one of the biggest deer scouting months i feel like um depending on where you're at in the country for me between march and april is about that time for people further south maybe it's you know february to march time frame but definitely a lot of great guys on there like you mentioned earlier and that's just the ability to be able to log on and ask these guys questions and, and have them answer real time um and depending on you know how many questions there might be maybe you even get two questions in there that's right. Um, so. And man, it's so exciting to think you could log on and talk to Fred Bear. You know, like we're not going to be able to offer that specifically, <laughs> but to be able to log on and ask, you know, last week was Shane Simpson. We got Steve Shirk coming up next week. We have um, Rindle Eric coming up. We have Aaron Warbritton coming up. We have Jared Scheffler coming up. And all these guys are are totally on board with with helping us out with growing this thing and, and, and getting our name out there. And really what we stand for is uh, preserving that culture of hunting. 
And uh, they've been so awesome to help us out in these early days. And it's so cool for me to sit back and watch these guys who are hungry to grow, reach out and ask some of these guys that they look up to ask them questions and get a response, you know, in real time. That is, I I think probably one of my favorite things with Hunt Better is just closing that gap and giving, you know, your, your everyday outdoorsman a chance to interact with somebody they, they really look up to. I mean, that's just, we've, we've got to keep that going. It's, you know, a little bit more low key, more focused. And some of those questions will beat off of one another. And it really is kind of that, that live experience. Yeah. And, you know, we're able to focus our conversation too. you know, the conversational topic, um, we're able to dive a little bit deeper. And like what you said, you can ask a follow-up question. Um, you know, we're still growing. So now's probably the best time to jump on a live stream because you can really get some questions in and we, we answer as many questions as we can. Uh, we don't, we don't, you know, we usually, they probably go about an hour and 15 hour, 20 minutes. Um, but that's specifically what they're there for. And, I mean, I just know five years ago, I would have jumped all over this. And so I'm just glad we have something like that, you know, on the scene now. And we want to get better. We want we want it to go beyond whitetails. We want it to go beyond turkeys. We want to, you know, in the future have stuff for mule deer hunting, out west hunting, elk hunting, bear hunting, all that stuff, uh, duck hunting. And so we are, our, our vision is big for this thing, uh, but we're just trying to grow it, you know, one brick at a time. Yeah. And a question that I had gotten from somebody was, you know, if they are not available for the live stream, you know, can they still watch? And the answer is yes. Like they're all posted after the fact. And then I think even for, for some of these live streams that we have upcoming, we might have to work through logistics, but if people have questions, they know they're not going to be able to make it. You know, they can message one of us those questions. We'll make sure that it gets on the, uh, gets on the actual live stream. Yeah, that, that is something we're working on. So we're trying to take feedback as we get it. Uh, we're getting a lot of really good feedback like that. And so we want to be able to, um, logistically work that out to be able to ask questions if somebody's not going to be able to be there. And yes, all of our live streams are recorded. And so you can go back. I mean, every week we are growing our catalog, um, at least with an hour's worth or more of content um, with these, these really experienced successful hunters. And man, what a, what a catalog this will be when deer season rolls around, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. We started this thing in early, early part of the year. Uh, knowing that by the time the vast majority of people are going to be, you know, getting back into gear for deer season, you know, we will have built up a, a pretty large library there of not only the the live streams where people can just, you know, browse and listen to them at their own leisure or the, the conversations or the hunt breakdowns. And the hunt breakdowns, if people have watched my YouTube videos and we'll see like a hunt and I'll show, you know, videos of the maps and kind of show little icons moving, it's similar in a way, but it's more detailed. Uh, I would say that there's a lot more that goes into discussing the habitat and the terrain and some of the historical information on a lot of these hunts. You know, whoever's doing the hunt breakdown might have three years of history on a particular deer. And so we work on basically getting in that history, how it correlates with the landscape and the habitat, anything that was really specific detail-wise that maybe would have, you know, uh, could make or break the the particular scenario. And trying to make it so that it's less so about just like watching a kill on video and more so about like, okay, how could I maybe replicate that or find a similar situation in the terrain that I'm hunting? Yeah. The, the breaking down the hunts are incredible. And, you know, for me, I, like I said, I'm a visual person. And so finding those common threads um, visually, that's what really helps me. And so, you know, watching the breaking down the hunts we have now, you'll notice like access is always really important really, really important. And for me, I've learned that over the last several years of, of people, you know, mentoring me, pouring into me, like access, access, access. Um, and so that's something that you're not really going to get if you're just watching for entertaining reasons. And that's to, to answer a lot of questions out there. That's what sets hunt better apart is that again, we're trying to close that gap from entertainment. Like we want it to be entertaining, but we really want to dive deep on the educational side. And so everything we do kind of runs through that filter of, Hey, is this going to be high value? Um, is this going to educate more hunters towards woodsmanship? Um, is it going to help them use their tools more as tools um, to kind of keep that foundation solid? Uh, yeah, man, just lots of exciting stuff. I wish we could talk more about what we got coming, but yeah, soon, soon. Yeah, absolutely. 
that that kind of reminded me of you know one of the questions we got on a recent live stream was you know regarding a particular area of the country and public land and how you couldn't use trail cameras there and how how one might go about getting it done in that type of a a circumstance um, and that led into a bunch of good conversation so that's just another good example there in some of the places around my home i'll give myself a challenge hunt so to speak where i might say hey this year this tag um maybe it's an area that doesn't allow trail cameras um, usually if they're they're allowed i tend to use them a little bit but just in terms of the actual strategy you know there's a big marsh by me I, this particular place i can't use trail cameras and i chose to just say i don't have any high expectations in this area um i can't really get inventory there's not really good areas to glass it's very dense uh cover the only time you can really see a deer if it's is if it's basically in bow range um you might be able to find sheds and do a lot of postseason scouting but then you know once the season comes around you're basically boots on the ground looking for hot sign looking for food sources acorns that are dropping and you know that was the hunt that i decided to hunt with my traditional gear too and I felt like in that scenario, maybe I wasn't as likely to, to shoot a big buck as I am on some of my other tags and some of the other states that I hunt. But I felt like I was learning a lot and I was re-honing and sharpening the skill set that ultimately is going to provide a baseline for me to be better kind of overall. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. When you get excited about the struggle, when you get excited about um, the, the friction it takes to sharpen that edge, that's when you start growing as a hunter and you start becoming more and more successful. Not that being a successful hunter is killing big bucks. Um, I, I think that, that's another soapbox I can get on, but um, being successful in the sense of what, what makes you happy while you're out there, you know, and for, for, for a lot of uh, the hunting community, it's, it's chasing after those bigger animals, more mature animals, because it's a challenge, you know, exactly to the same point. Um, you know, Andy's really funny because, uh, you know, all these big bucks that he's killed, he still want his big thing is he wants to be um, dangerous in any situation. And exactly to your point, if you go to a place where, hey, you can't use trail cameras, you better have a backup plan, you know, and that backup plan better have some experience behind it um, or you're really going to struggle. And so just being well-rounded and finding the I, I like that idea of uh, what did you call it? A challenge hunt. That's really cool. Uh, like several years ago, I think I said it earlier, maybe like five years ago. I started realizing, man, these trail cameras are really, I think I heard Dan and Vault say like, do you want to, you want a picture of them or do you want to hang them on your wall? And I was like, oh, <laughs> that, that's me, you know, guilty. And so that year I challenged myself, like, you're not going to, I sold all my trail, every one of them. Um, and I didn't use them. And I was like, I'm at least going to take one season off. And I took a season off and then I think it ended up, I just got trail cameras last year, last season, or no, no, maybe two seasons ago. So I ended up taking like three years off from trail cameras and it, I really didn't even miss them because I fell in love with this whole idea of, okay, if I didn't have that, what would I do? And then I get excited about, oh, okay, well, I guess I need to go do that. I better learn how to do that better. And a lot of that stuff was just boots on the ground and reacting to, to hot sign as I came across it. So man, that the friction that causes an edge is, is really, it's almost addicting. Yeah. Yeah. When you pull off a hunt like that, where you feel like you scouted your way in, you found the hot sign, you did a decision-making process, picked the right tree, and then it all came together and you were able to fill a tag that way. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable when it all you know comes together and it's a really good feeling. Yeah, even if, even if it happens one time a season, th the knowledge you gain, the, uh, the skills that you develop through that grinding it out and then capitalizing, it really even if you don't capitalize how you've developed yourself, um, that's what makes you more dangerous in the woods. And that, that is what starts setting you apart from uh, people who aren't getting it done consistently. Uh, so yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, and I, I feel like the people I learn the most from are the ones that most, I would say mostly embody that same mentality. They get excited about the same type of stuff that I get excited about. They're out there scouting all the time in the off season. They, uh, I feel like I can bounce ideas off of them at, at any point in time and get a good response. Maybe something that is thinking about a particular scenario in a little bit different light than I would have thought about it just because they have a different, you know, hunting life experience. And so that's 
kind of the the core mentality of a lot of guys that were getting on the platform. Yeah, and you know that common thread I talked about earlier, um, common thread among guys who are consistently successful, one of those common threads is that they enjoy scouting just as much. You know, it, the kill is almost just, man, that, that just ends the cycle and then it starts back over. Um, it doesn't all revolve around the kill. A lot of it, the majority of it, I would say, revolves around scouting. And, you know, I mean, it's in the word, hunting them down. And that's where you learn. That's where you grow by going out there and grinding it out and failing. Uh, some of my most memorable hunts are when I didn't drag anything out of the woods. You know, I just learned. I, mean, I had one of those, uh, had a tough season this past season, but it was one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had in hunting. Um, and I learned a whole lot. I mean, it, again, Dan Infault said a lot of this. Uh, he said a lot of these things very similar to this. But one thing he said was, um, when you can walk away each season, whether it's your stand making noise or, you know, maybe your saddle setup is not what you want. If you can walk away going, okay, this is what I'm going to fix. And this is how I'm going to be better when I go back out there next time. I'm, I'm going to be a 1% deadlier next time I go out. That's when you start noticing, you know, by the end of the season, man, I might even capitalize on a buck or, or maybe I might tag out on these turkeys because I've put in the work. I've, I've worked to get 1% better in the off season. You know, for us, there is no off season. Um, now it's it's March here in South Carolina, so I think it was like 82 degrees today. <laughs> so as I was laughing about what you said earlier about you know it's still scouting season, like it's becoming like brutal here now, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, just putting in the work to get better and not being so focused on the kill, but being focused on the process. Uh, it's about the chase. It's about the pursuit. And uh, you know, it sounds cliche, I guess, um, but it, for me, as I started getting older and you look back, you're like, man, that really is what it is, you know, and uh, back to what my dad said, if you took everything away, could I still get it done? And when I say that to myself now, you know, it's, it's kind of a challenge, like, yeah, could I get it done? And that, that's what drives me. And in South Carolina, where you live, my only memories from being in that area of the country or, or hunting around the Fort Stewart area that we've gone to for some of the Palooza events, and it just seems like that area, you know, and I'm just kind of generalizing the, that whole region of the country, but it seems like it'd be very hard to consistently be able to have success in that type of an environment. And I'm wondering like where you're at in South Carolina, is it just kind of that, that really big kind of thick timber, um, maybe lower deer density, lots of hogs. Um, and you really got to put in a lot of boot miles and you, you can't necessarily, you know, glass and not a whole lot of agriculture around is it that type of an environment. Yeah, you described it pretty well. Um, many a days I've been fooled by a, an old hog track in the mud. So um, it's kind of like an old southern hunting joke is don't don't be fooled by the hog tracks. But um, you, you could be chasing the wrong animal for a long time. Um, so learn your hog tracks, learn your deer tracks if you're in the south. Um, lots of hogs, lots of uh, lots of thick, man. There's bedding everywhere. And that's what makes it difficult. You know, I think, I think about a buck I killed um, two seasons ago. And I got a picture of him. It was actually the, the first year I started using trail cameras again. And um, I got a picture of him, I think, in August, July or August. And I killed him on October 30th. Um, but that was when I got a picture of him. He was at a primary, primary scrape area in the middle of a, I think it was 553 acres of thick bedding. And so when I got a picture of him, I remember talking to my buddy Justin Wright and saying like, how in the world am I supposed to hunt this thing down? Like it's 553 acres. Like what have I got myself into? Um, but it was big enough to run after. And, you know, I talked through it with, with several of my buddies and ended up on the third hunt, I killed him. And around here, I think, I mean, it, it is in a sense, big woods, you know, Greg Miller in one of his books says, uh, uh, for, for definition sake, let's, let's consider 350 acres of monotonous timbers big woods and and that's really what it is around here you'll have you know a few thousand acre tracks you'll have a few hundred acre tracks you'll have some 40 and 50 and 60 acre tracks uh but for the most part it's just big monotonous bedding everywhere timber and it makes it really difficult and you do have these low density uh, numbers they're always i shouldn't say always but they are most often very pocketed um and so it takes a ton 
of boot leather uh, to cover that ground, to not be scared of being aggressive, not be scared of bumping deer, but you have to find them or you're going to spend all season hunting where they're not. And, uh, you know, late season gets really difficult. I was talking to our wildlife biologist uh, several years ago and he was we were talking about rut stuff and he was sending data to me. I, I, I doubt there's a lot of people reaching out saying, hey, could you send me some data on whitetails? <laughs> and so he probably like really excited him, but uh, he sent it. He sent me some stuff and we went back and forth for a while. Uh, but he was saying, man, December, because I asked him about late season deer hunting. I was like, you know, any tips on you know, December-ish hunting in South Carolina? Because I really struggle. I struggle late season. And uh, our whitetail biologist, man, said he basically considers deer season over uh, on uh, December 1st. <laughs> and we're, we go for another month. But like when the whitetail biologist is telling you that, it's like, man, yeah, it's supposed to be hard. And uh, during that late season, it's all about finding the food. And they are very, very pocketed. And so if you're lucky to, you know, maybe stumble on some some red oaks um, that are haven't been eaten up, uh, I can think of a handful of times I've done that. You can find that feed tree late season, but that's very rare, at least for me. Um, but early season around here is is my favorite time because at least, you know, central South Carolina, we have a, sliv- a sliver to the northwest and then a sliver on the coast that are um like i think on the coast they rut in september actually and then on the northwest sliver it's more mountainous um hilly terrain that's more of like normal rut like no you know first week of novemberish but where i am in a large part of south carolina the peak of the rut is october 31st so october 10th to um maybe the 25th is a really prime time and around here you don't see a lot of daytime rut activity even at the peak of the rut because it's too hot i mean it's uh i remember one december it being 75 degrees like having my thermocell in a tree like late december that that's hunting (laughs) that's hunting south carolina man (laughs) and like i don't think a lot of people understand it because you know a lot of the commercial stuff for hunting is is more that midwest and 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 it's cool but what i i think myself included southern hunters can can struggle because they're trying to hunt in relation to Midwest tactics and timing. And you just can't do that. You know, around here, hunting over a primary scrape first part of October is a dynamite strategy. My primary scrape being that one that's near bedding um, that you're getting daylight pictures on if you're using trail cameras. But one that is, you know, when you find this scrape along thick cover that you're scared to make too much noise because you may bump them out. Maybe that's the one you need to be focused on. Um, scrapes get a bad rap around the South, man, because there's so many throughout the woods. Uh, you know, Andy and Andy May and I've talked about this, that, you know, there's like 2% of scrapes out there that are really worth considering hunting over, but don't ignore the other ones. But, um, you know, rub lines around here are really key to tracking them down because it's so monotonous. It's so big, you know, and I even struggle with this too, when, you can have a plan all day long. It's kind of like, well, I think what Mike Tyson said, you, everybody has a plan until you get hit in the mouth. Um, and it's kind of like that with big woods, man. You can have a plan and then you, you step out of your truck or it, you walk onto the little tractor you're on and it could swallow you up so fast. Um, I'm sure the guys up north, like in Maine and stuff, realize that probably on a totally different scale. But even here, you have to be confident in your plan and you can't be, um, you know, I think you need to follow your gut sometimes. And, but there's, there's a time where you just need to stick to the plan. Um, and around here, you know, I, I've, I've killed big deer when there's no sign anywhere, but it's the, maybe I'm hunting the only funnel, um, that connects this large, uh, parcel to that large parcel. And maybe they don't want to go through this 12 year old clear cut, but they want to go through this little, little, uh, you know, 25 yard wide sliver of timber. Um, but there's not a, there's not a sign anywhere, but maybe there's a beat down trail. So you just have to adapt. It's a totally different way. If, you, if you're trying to hunt, you know, like like you would in Illinois farm country in the South, it's it's probably not going to go well. <laughs> so you have to adapt. It's it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I was in Alabama uh, back in January, and one of the days I was down there, I went onto uh, some public land and just wanted to cover some ground, and did all the typical, you know loop style that i would do in that type of terrain it was it was pretty hilly but not incredibly steep and 
I just took one of those big ridge systems and just made a loop around all of the kind of the military crest area, just covering ground and saw very little sign for most of the day. And then finally got back into this one pocket where I was like, okay, now like you got a little bit more diversity. There was a little bit of creek, a creek running through that was nearby. It was near private that had a big uh, clear cut that was growing up pines. And in, even in the timber, it was on a ridge where it was like, I don't know, maybe 50% denser than a lot of the surrounding woods. And so you had all that kind of going on. And even though you would look at the map and you're like, well, there's not much here. Like you could look at the, you know, the corner and uh, the pine thicket and the creek and be like, well, there's more diversity there. And there was, but just looking around at eye level, it wasn't obvious until you got there. And then it was like, oh, now that there's sign all over the place. Right. I think I counted 17 scrapes that I marked in a, a circle that I drew after the fact that it ended up being like 10 acres. And I think I found five other scrapes in like the entire five, six mile loop that I made the rest of the day. It was like the sign was there, ended up seeing a deer there. And it was like, you know, just I feel like I wouldn't have known to even get into that spot had I not hunted some of the northern Wisconsin bigger woods type of habitat, which had similarities, at least in terms of how it hunted, even though it looks quite different uh from one landscape to the other yeah and that's that those pocketed deer that i was talking about earlier there and once you find them you know and so i think i think uh an important thing to consider you know i'm not some you know big buck killer you know five big bucks a year that's not me um but i have connected several times and for me what's been important is realizing what sign to not ignore but to not consider hunting over. Um, you know, people find the, they'll find the first bit of sign when they're scouting and they'll set up right there. And when you're talking about big woods, you, you just can't do that. Like you, you might connect every now and then, but you've got to find that sign that makes you go, oh my gosh, this is what everybody's been talking about. This right here is it. And you'll just know. And I think maybe we talked about this on a live stream a while back. It might've been you and me. Um, but just find, you know, not settling for anything else and putting the miles on, not being scared to walk and cover ground. Um, cause when you find that pocket of sign, you're, you're, you're going to find these, this rub line that turns into a rub cluster and it's just going to be gnarly and there's going to be shavings all over the ground. It's going to be, you know, the, the trees are going to be bleeding a little bit and you're going to have in- incredibly fresh grapes. And it's just going to be a no brainer. And, once you tell yourself, you know, like I said earlier, stick into the plan of I'm not, especially if it's during season, I'm not settling for anything less than that. Um, you know, I think it's Warren Wilmot who who said there are days where he would walk for four hours in the evening and not find anything and then just just head on home, you know, but, but scout until dark because uh, he doesn't want to just sit and hope that it happens. Um, you know, use that extra hour to cover more ground. And I think when you start coming across things like that, you start getting excited to find another one like it because that's when you know, man, this is going to be a high odds sit. You know, is it going to happen every time? No, but you know, you're in the game and you're learning so much. And when it comes to big woods, you can't overemphasize scouting. You can't overemphasize putting miles on your boots and, and, and putting the work in. Yeah. I've talked a fair amount with uh, a guy named Brian Dabrowski in Wisconsin and I would consider him somewhat of a big woods expert and he'll go out of state and he'll just like his entire hunt strategy all involves around like the week that he's there. Like he doesn't make trips to go scout it in the off season and learn the land. He's not running trail cameras. He just gets out there and he puts on a lot of miles when he's out there. And over the years, like every time he's out there, you learn something a little bit new and he's always getting fresh Intel and that strategy over time. Now he, not only is able to see what's fresh and what's not fresh, but he also has a really good calibration on this is really good sign for this area. And this maybe looks good compared to what I would expect to see at home. But I know that, you know, out here it's, it's only so, so like I got to keep going to find something that's really good. And that's a, a really unique way of scouting in season and hunting that I've kind of, you know, gleaned from him and, and try to do on similar hunts. Yeah. I think a really good question when you're scouting the big woods is to, you know, when you get out of your truck, when you start walking in to go, I'm going to categorize things as daytime sign and nighttime sign. Whatever, anything I find, I'm not going to allow myself to get overly excited about something. Even if it's this incredibly huge rub 
or you know this car hood scrape where's it at where's it at and I, I i have to tell myself before i leave before i mark it on on my mapping app is this daytime sign or is this nighttime and that's going to save you so much heartache <laughs> it's going to save you so many pins too probably you know maybe mark those pins but you're you're putting the puzzle together you know i think a really good thing is and we you and i definitely talked about this before is marking all these things and then going back looking at all this thing all these pins zooming out and then trying to write the story what what is the story here you know what are, what are these things telling me like maybe 90 percent of this doesn't really matter it's part of the story but this is the fi the five or ten percent that really really matters that i focus on because when it comes to the big woods if you're not breaking that thing down because there's actually more uh unproductive land than there is productive land and you've got to go in there with that mindset um, because when you do put the miles on, when you do start going, hey, is this daytime sign or nighttime sign? What you're doing is just chiseling away these things that that aren't going to help you get closer to killing a big buck. And so you're getting rid of that. Hey, nighttime sign. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember it, um, but I'm gonna let that help me get closer to where the daytime sign is. And then when you find that pocket again, it's gonna be this. These light bulbs are gonna go off, and you're gonna be like, oh my goodness, that is what everybody's been talking about. And then you have that. In your in your back pocket for when you go find something else. So yeah, big ones is all about finding that pocket, but you've got to work for it. You, you've got to work for it. Yeah, and even though I've started to hunt that type of habitat more and more, I still find like I, I still feel like I learn a whole lot from guys who are able to connect on ultra small parcels. Right, like I just edited a hunt breakdown for Andy, where he didn't have much land to work with, and this deer was evading pressure on all sides you know, as heavily hunted as as any deer you know probably a lot more heavily hunted i would say on a per acreage basis than a lot of the public that i deal with and he was able to over a three-year time span figure out exactly the details needed to be able to put an arrow in that buck and man there's a lot to learn from from that story and that strategy on you know su such a small piece and you can only work with what you can work with yeah, Andy's also just a freak show. <laughs> so, yeah, that that is a, an incredible hunt breakdown. You know, I think about things that relate to southern hunting. Um, I mean, there needs to be more stuff out there. Uh, I think the southern outdoorsmen are doing some really cool stuff. I'm really thankful for them. Uh, they're doing a good thing for the for the hunting community at large. Um, but you know, given the given all of the content that's Midwest focused, you know, like points. I know, you know, a big thing for you is, and, and guys in Wisconsin areas like that are points going into swamps um, or marshes, you know, timber points going into smart, uh, marshes. And so for, for here, we do have swamps, but they're a little bit different and they have a little, a few different critters rolling around in them. <laughs> so <laughs> they're not as easy to access. Um, it's so funny because you can pull up some swamps around here in marshes in South Carolina, man, you can just see trails like crazy. Like, oh my goodness, all I need to do is sit right there. Like I could go in there from a cyber scout and I think I can arrow one, um, but I'm not going to because I'm maybe eaten by a gator. Um, and so you just, you know, things are different here. But, but all that said, what I love doing is going, okay, how do I take that information of if I'm in Wisconsin and there's this timber point going into a, 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 a cattail marsh how does that relate to what I'm doing? Because, you know, deer are probably going to behave the same way-ish, you know, not at all the time, but but maybe most of the time. So around here, one thing I've, uh, uh, the points I've kind of connected are when you have uh, an SMZ, you know, Warren Womack's big on SMZs, the streamside management zones. And when I started focusing on those, you, know, you find this clear cut that, you know, it's 500 and something acres of bedding, but then you find these little streamside management zones, these SMZs, these little creeks that run through where they're not able to cut the, the hardwoods from, I don't know, I don't know if there's like a set yardage amount, but it's usually like, you know, 15 or 20 yards or so on either side of the creek. Man, these are travel funnels. And a lot of times the only oaks that are standing are on those SMZs. And then a lot of times you'll have those SMZs that turn into points and it just kind of all of a sudden peters out and it's the head of this ditch. So now you have several things coming together that you've maybe heard about in the Midwest or up North of, you know, tops of, uh, ditches, um, that creates a funnel. Then you have this, this, this terrain feature of a point 
you know, or I guess maybe habitat feature of a point. And you have this kind of condensed travel. You have food that's going to be, hey, if there's an oak tree right at the tip of that SMZ, if there's a white oak producing right there, well, bedding is right there. There's a there's a, a natural terrain funnel. There's a natural habitat funnel. There's a food source right there. It, you know, maybe you got some some sign laid down there. Maybe there's a rub cluster where he's staging up just inside. That's a thing for a southern hunter to focus on. Is to say, okay, I'm watching all this stuff. The majority of it's Midwest. The majority of it's northern type stuff. The timelines might be different. You know, I think you said earlier, Alabama. I, I think they rut in January, which blows my mind. That's even crazy for me. Um, and so you just have to you have to keep things in context wherever you are in the country. M- make sure that you're not following all of the advice and all the timelines from somebody that lives, you know, 800 miles away. Uh, talk to local guys, and that and that's where I think you would agree with that, Garrett, too. Like finding these local guys, what you said earlier, it is really cool because you start kind of what hunt better is based on. You start learning these little nuanced things. You're like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Like I've never looked at it that way. Uh, especially when it comes to to southern hunting, because you don't you don't see a lot of, a lot of this uh, these tips out there. Right, there's not a lot of hands on video based content. You know, there's good podcasts like you mentioned. Um, I'm more of a visual guy myself. I either need to see it or I need to do it. And uh, if I'm just listening to it, I usually got to listen to it about three or four times before it sinks in, and I got about five follow up questions. Right, totally. Hey, so so what are some of the um... What are some of the, uh, let's say like universal, what are some terrain features that travel, you know, like saddles, uh, sure, sure. points? I'd say points seem to be pretty universal in, in terms of, you know, maybe they'll get hunting pressure and that's something you're just going to have to walk out for, watch out for, but ridge systems where you have some kind of terrain and it doesn't have to be tall terrain. It could be 400 foot bluffs along the Mississippi, or it could be you know, a hundred foot elevation gain that's really gradual. I've seen deer relate to those points in either scenario. And, you know, they could bet off of them. They could just use them for travel. Depends on, you know, a lot of the context. But especially if you have a cluster of points in a, you know, proximity and you have food and the cover on it is decent. Like deer, from what I've seen, are going to relate to that no matter what, like where you're at in the country. Saddles would be a steeper saddle, I would say, is probably one that's universal with exception to pressure, right? They usually be the, are like one of the first terrain features or two that guys will focus on. And so that might negate some of, of how often they're used in daylight. But I tend to find also that, you know, saddles, if they're not steep enough and extreme enough, where deer don't feel like they have to use them, but they might not use them as much. I can think of one saddle that I remember scouting where I'm like, yep, this thing is getting hammered. It was really steep, um, yet to go around that saddle, you would have had to cover another 100 foot of elevation gain in a really short amount of time, and it was just pounded. It was in an area where we also had some elk, and so the elk were using that as well, and it was, you know, it's one of the most heavy trails I remember seeing, but I found one of those in my life. And I've hunted places in Missouri where you got two, 300 foot hills, but not ultra, ultra steep and see deer walk just right up over the very tip top of the point and just bypass the saddle entirely. Um, I feel like anytime you get some type of water system, whether it's a creek river, like that seems to travel pretty well and deer might use them slightly differently. But if you find that edge, um, same thing with uh, just vegetation edges, I feel like that travels super well. No matter what state I'm hunting, if you're on the edge of a thick to thin transition, regardless of what type of habitat that is, you know, is it pines? Is it aspen trees? Is it a, you know, a beach thicket? Like if you're walking those vegetative edges, you're going to find deer sign if there's deer in the area. Yeah. And I think another thing, I agree with all that. I think another thing is the vantage point uh, when you're talking about mature bucks, whatever Whatever it looks like in Wisconsin, whatever it looks like in Florida, whatever it looks like in South Carolina or Alabama or Illinois, wherever they're going to have a vantage point, the best vantage point, that's where they're going to be. You know, and that can look different in so many different scenarios. Um, but you, I think that's where it comes back to woodsmanship of just stopping sometimes. You know, Maybe having these 
these references on your map that you want to check out for scouting, you know, that should just expedite the scouting process rather than, you know, laying so much boot leather on unproductive land. Um, having these hotspots to go to to verify before you tear the whole property apart. Um, but th the idea that this mature buck is going to find the spot that gives him the most protection, that gives him the, the, the best alarm system, um, that's what I've seen. Um, you know, South Carolina can have a lot of diversity. You know, I've hunted in Tennessee before, and that is always the case. Um, whether it's thick cover behind them, whether it's, you know, util utilizing road systems. Um, I, I mean, you know, I've told guys before, uh, I, I've parked the truck before on off-season scouting. It's, it's, it's one of the most recent ones I can remember. It was off-season or maybe right before the season. And I'm going out and covering this new track of land. And so I park my truck right at the little gate. I go walking in. Dude, I'm still stuffing things into my pocket. Like I'm still like I just like my truck. I'm putting my keys in my pocket. But I'm, I'm walking. And I as I'm putting my phone in my pocket, I cut this track walking across the dirt road. And to my left was just an amazingly thick uh, section. I mean, just just almost so thick where you're like nothing's going through there. And I cut this track and I, I stopped and I backed up. And I was like, man, that's a that's a fairly big track. And it's it's fairly fresh. And I looked over and I could see where it kind of walked through the thick of the grass. And then it just got just really thick. But it was more around here. It's a lot of briars. But this is actually more grassy type stuff. So I think that's why it was able to get through it. You just had to push through it all. And I backed up. And I took a step, I took a, a step or two off of the trail and uh, a deer jumped up and took off probably 12 yards from me. And I was like, oh, you know, it scared the crap out of me. And, uh, and I walked over there and I saw its bed perfectly matted down. I sat down in the bed and obviously a buck bed. And I could see when I sat down in the bed, I could see the top of my truck. And that is when it all clicked for me. Oh my goodness, this thing is this thing is bedding right here because nobody's nobody's even thinking about messing with him at this point in the walk. <laughs> you know, like they've just gotten out of their truck. Why would you not bed here? Because everybody's walking back there. And so that that was a lesson for me of do not overlook those spots close to the road that offer cover. You know, don't just hunt close to the road just because uh, you heard somebody say it. Look at it and go, hey, is this going to offer him a vantage point? And when I sat in his bed, he could see the top of my truck. Obviously, he could hear me. And he, he, here's the, here's the coolest thing about that. I'm probably going down a rabbit trail here, but I get excited about it is he was going to let me walk by him. Like that's, that's the craziest thing about that is he was totally fine with me being one more yard away from where I was, where I, I made him nervous. And then when I stopped and I backed up and I took like, dude, maybe two steps off of where I was supposed to be, he bolted. And that right there back to what we were saying earlier, taught me more than any thread I've ever read. Like seeing it, maybe I did read that, maybe I've heard it hundreds of times, but witnessing it that one time was, I learned, oh my gosh, I cannot overlook these spots because he was he was going to sit right there and I never would have known it. Yeah, experience really is the best teacher because it just, like you said, it sticks with you. You get that mental image just burned into your mind forever especially if it's like a you know big rack bounding away or, or something like that. I can still remember flashbacks to even in like Colorado jumping some, some deer um, that make some of the whitetails around here look pretty small just because the frame size is enormous on, on some of those bucks. But uh, yeah, it's like you can, you can read it a million times. You can listen to it. You can even watch videos on it. But once you see it yourself, then it clicks a lot of times. That's right. Yeah. And it doesn't leave you. You start remembering that, you know, it's not like you have to, a lot of things you, at least for me, the stuff you read, the stuff you watch, and maybe this is just my mind, but I have to, you know, almost work to remind myself of those things as I'm going in. Um, but when you have, when you experience something like that, or like we were talking about earlier, when you experience walking up on this pocket of sign, you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is it right here. You don't forget it. And then it's, for me at least, my mind just goes into overdrive of, okay, like, where's this area? Oh, it's at the, it's at the head of this isolated point. Okay. So remember isolated points. Um, military crests are key around here. That's one, that's one thing going back to what we were saying earlier that travels is points, whether you, even if you're in rolling Hills, you may find those, um, those isolated ridges that have a little bit steeper of a, uh, of, of 
crests and or you know ridges and you can walk those crests and you're going to find a lot of you're going to find a lot of times that those rub lines along those things are going to be bedding um in the south you you our deer are a lot smaller um and so you might have a hard time finding actual beds but it, it's kind of what you know dan's gonna dan and fault's gonna hunt those you know specific beds and you can have success here doing that i've done that but you can also you know take the john eberhardt approach and hunt the bedding area uh, i don't think either one is is wrong obviously they're they're doing fine but uh yeah it, it, in the south it comes down to and i guess really anywhere and andy may's really uh he, he says this all the time is focus on the situation you know everything is situational so don't just take everything you've learned and just run into a hunt trying to utilize all these things you know that's something we can get carried away with too is just this information overload when it's like i really liked what you said earlier that challenge season what am i going to challenge myself with how am i going to handicap myself you know i think fred bear said something like uh there's there's more fun in hunting with the handicap of a bow than there is the sureness of a gun <laughs> you know and i think that can relate to tech stuff these days i think it can relate to a lot of tools and just keep that mindset of hey how, how am I going to sharpen that edge going into this one? What am I, how am I going to live it myself? How am I going to, you know, use my mind? How am I going to, kind of what our tagline is at Hunt Better, how, how am I going to hunt harder? How am I going to hunt smarter uh, to be more successful? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that was kind of a good summary of, of uh, how we feel about that platform overall. I guess as we kind of tie this thing up, any any additional plans that you got for this season? Are you going to be hunting just in South uh, Carolina or are you going to be going some other places as well? I may travel this year. Um, I got two small kids and it's, it's getting harder to do things like that. It's, it's getting harder to hunt just in my home state, to be honest with you. And so, you know, it's learning how to, I remember Joe Elsinger talking about that and uh, I'm definitely in that season now. So I gotta, I gotta be careful with balancing all those things. Um, but I, I hope, all that said, I hope to hunt out of state this year. Um, you know, we got turkey season starting uh, April 1st on public land, and April 1st happens to be a Saturday, so that's going to be fun. <laughs> uh, maybe take that following Monday off to get some uh, some space in the woods to run around, but <laughs> that'll be fun. Um, hoping to tag out this year. Uh, um, I love taking other people turkey hunting, um, so hopefully I can do that this year. Um and then, yeah, when, when turkey season's over, get a little, little bit of fishing in and then start getting ready for uh, for deer season. That'll that'll start, you know, prep for that will probably start around June or something like that. Uh, but, I mean, I say start, that that's that goes every day of the year. But I'll really start dialing things in in June and, you know, maybe, maybe get some cameras out, you know, maybe not use cameras this year, uh, but going in and start trying to find that, that sign of, you know, around here because rubs are going to start being laid down. Um, pretty early you know like maybe mid-august uh up through maybe the first week of september something like that um you can get on some of them pretty early or, sorry not rubs you, scrapes gonna be laid down that kind of mid-august through september you're gonna start seeing some rubs start coming down when the velvet starts coming off and it's gonna be uh if that's gonna be your best chance to get on something so i put a lot of time in the woods uh that first part of the season and trying to capitalize yep it's gonna be a good time we got a lot of cool stuff coming you guys and we need your support. We can't do it without you. And, you know, our our whole goal is to preserve the culture of hunting and enjoy the tech stuff, enjoy the tools. They are awesome. And there's so many great companies out there that we are great friends with. Um, and we're becoming great friends with, with a lot more of them. Um, but there's also this aspect of we want to be kind of that, that light that says, hey, let's not forget about woodsmanship. Let's keep that at the core of everything we do. Man, that makes using tools all kinds of gear uh more fun and easier uh, but then we also want to protect the future of hunting and so that comes down to exactly what it is with preserving the culture of hunting but we want to protect the future by educating these younger guys that are getting into it these younger girls that are getting into it um, we want to do that by giving our profits away giving your hard-earned money that you're trusting us with and putting that back into these organizations who are doing really great work like nwtf i mean what they're doing is it's just unbelievable uh, they're doing such great work. Uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, just several others uh, that we're super happy to support. Um, and we said this on a uh, live stream the other day, it's, it's not us, it's you guys. 
And so we want to kind of provide that on-ramp for you to get more involved and, and to stay up to date with all that stuff. So preserving the culture of hunting and protecting the future, that, that's why we exist. Well, Mike, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your night to, to come on the podcast and talk. Well, dude, thanks for having me. This has been awesome. And if people want to check out a little bit more about Hunt Better, the website is huntbetter.us. And on social media, it is watch Hunt Better, all one word. <laughs>